0: Hi, this is Brian Lehrer. You're listening to WNYC On Demand, podcasts, streaming, and MP3 downloads, available when you want to listen at WNYC.org and iTunes. WNYC On Demand is supported by Datapipe, delivering custom solutions for businesses with complex Internet-facing infrastructures. Datapipe manages the entire infrastructure, including data center operations, servers, applications, storage, monitoring, and security. (laughs) Datapipe.com. Brian Lehrer on WNYC and WNYC.org. Good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for listening today. We are nearing the one-year anniversary of when Wall Street's problems became all our problems. It was early September last year that the government took over Fannie Mae, remember? Merrill Lynch and Bank of America merged after Merrill's problems, and Lehman Brothers collapsed entirely on September 15th. From there... The problems that started with risky investments on Wall Street and wild speculation in the housing market metastasized to affect the entire economy and all of our lives. And since then, we've been tracking the impact of the recession, big and small, from the price of cheese to rising unemployment. And here in New York, certainly Wall Street has felt a hit, but so have lots of other prominent sectors of the local economy. And in the latest issue of City Journal, the publication of the conservative think tank, the Manhattan Institute, James Panero tracks how New York's arts institutions from the Brooklyn Museum to the Metropolitan Opera have been affected by the downturn. Of course, when you run a large nonprofit with million-dollar endowments and a reliance on wealthy benefactors, your fortunes are largely largely tied to market performance, but Panero thinks it's not that simple. Many of New York's most prominent cultural institutions adopted the same sorts of bundled risk, high-reward strategies that got Lehman, EIG, and others into so much trouble, he says. His new piece is The Culture Crash. James Pinero, he's the art critic and manager of New Criterion uh, magazine, and he joins us in studio. Welcome to WNYC. Thanks for having me. Before we get to why it's so rough for institutions, tell us just how bad it is. How much of a hit did local museums and and, and other uh,
1: cultural institutions take over the past year or so? Well, my assignment for City Journal was to see how arts organizations are doing in the economic downturn. The short short answer is not very well. Uh, Since January, the Metropolitan Museum has cut 15% of its workforce uh, through layoffs and early retirement. And uh, the Brooklyn Museum has closed one of its three special exhibition galleries. Um, In April, I was actually listening to the show, and I heard Arnold Lehman from Brooklyn Museum. And he described the situation as a perfect storm. Funding across the board is down. But at the heart of this storm are losses in these organizations' endowments, which can be between 25 and 35 percent. At the Metropolitan, that means a loss of somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 to 800 million dollars. And since that museum derives, let's say, 30 percent of its annual budget from endowment revenue, that is a significant hit. And my article asks, well, how did this happen?
0: And I guess we should mention that Arnold Lehman, who runs the Brooklyn Museum, is um, not one of the Lehman brothers as far as <laughs> we know, right? Uh, but you think that that loss was much more than just the fact that their endowments were tied to the stock market. That's
1: right. I, I, I started the essay with that assumption. But then um, as I looked more closely, I said, well, why were these losses 25 30 35%? And it has to do with a systematic realignment of the way endowment funds were managed and invested. The old model was a more traditional conservative model. Not very interesting, didn't create a lot of uh, extra money, but it was there. And it didn't go down. It was treasuries, fixed income. Uh, The new model, uh, which is now in general practice, is it, it takes on a riskier portfolio of illiquid assets, hedge funds, private equity, Uh, It's sometimes called the Yale model after David Swenson, who manages the Yale University account. Uh, This model was designed to keep up with inflation. I mean, it's not an evil model. But my issue is that I think it is problematic when applied to arts organizations because endowment revenue with this model goes down precisely when the organizations need that money most.
0: Is it the same for colleges and universities? We know many of their endowments took such big hits.
1: It, it, It is all related to the same model. Yeah, Harvard. Mm-hmm.
0: And so why would it be wrong for an educational institution or an arts organization if it's not wrong for individuals who are trying to keep up with the market or companies who are trying to keep up with, with inflation?
1: It's not wrong in the abstract at all. I think it's wrong uh, because the risks involved with the model I don't think were fully understood by many of the organizations that were taking it on. There's a human factor there. Uh, your endowment goes up. You spend more money. That's just human nature. And you don't necessarily say, wait a minute, we have a risky strategy here. We've got to put some money aside because this could go down significantly just right. at a time when fundraising goes down. Is
0: it the same thing even for mom-and-pop investors? So many typical Americans whose money was in mutual funds in their 401Ks or whatever maybe didn't realize how much risk they were in for, but this just became what was considered the standard That's exactly right. in terms of your savings.
1: Right. Right. Um, You know, I think there was a disconnect between what the managers of this money were doing and what the people on the arts side understood was happening. I think if they really knew what was going on, they would have anticipated the risks.
0: How do private benefactors for arts institutions fit into the equation? Because many of the the larger institutions, you know, probably can't survive without wealthy patrons um, who are not technically part of their endowment money, but, you know, they've got
1: their own investments. Did that dry up similarly? Well, that's right. I mean, that dries up foundation money, dries up government money, dries up um, the uh, one issue when you're raising money for an arts organization. First, let's say you have this risky investment strategy; your endowment goes down. It's hard as a development officer to then go back to your donor and say, "You know, we just so we lost the money in a in a risky investment. Sorry. You know, can you give it again?" Uh, second. When you're fundraising for the arts, it it gets exceedingly difficult in economic downtimes to raise money from private individuals. Private individuals tend to steer their money towards what they see as more uh, kind of emergency causes. So you would advocate as
0: an art critic, arts writer, um, for arts organizations to make less risky investments because it protects the basic mission even though it may not allow as much growth
1: in that mission? I think that's right. Um, anticipate the risks of the investments you're making. And also look at spending. I think there was a general sense of overspending in the arts culture uh, where you, know, you have a problem, I think, when nonprofit institutions, directors of these institutions can command salaries of a million dollars a year, when museums are expected to expand exponentially every 10 years with you know, trophy facilities and new wings, um, everything needs to be reined in. It's not just one problem, but all spending needs to be reined in as well.
0: So I wonder if we have any listeners right now from arts organizations, particularly the kinds of major arts organizations that our guest James Pinero is talking about, but any arts organization. How do you see the balance between growth and stability uh, with respect to what you do with whatever money you have, be it an endowment or something too small to call an endowment. 212-433-WNYC. If anybody happens to be listening who would kind of fit this bill and wants to weigh in, 212-433-9692 for James Panero, whose article appears in the current issue of City Journal. Um, Is it different for smaller arts organizations? Are
1: we really talking about the biggies here? In this case, we are because it's the biggest arts organizations that have the biggest endowments and tend to rely on those endowments for their budget. Um, If you're a small organization, you might have an endowment, but you may not even use it for budget. It may just be there as a nest egg.
0: And in a minute, we'll continue to discuss the arts landscape in the city um, with our next guest When, when you're done, someone from the independent budget office of the city, who just released a report on the effect of changes in the way that the city allocates funding to smaller arts organizations throughout the area. How much does public funding figure into the financial landscape, both for big and small cultural institutions, and how much is it part of this risky investment story?
1: Well, government funding does fit in. Um, Places like Brooklyn Museum, uh, the Metropolitan Museum, these are semi public, semi-private organizations. They're on city land and they receive funding in the form of um, electricity and other kind of support. Uh, So there have been cutbacks in the last year, significant uh, for these large organizations. Brooklyn Museum, I think, especially is suffering from this because it was a pretty large percentage of their budget.
0: And I guess even the city and state pension funds around the country suffered major losses. And they also have the traditional ethic of conservative investments for mm-hmm. these pension funds. And I think they were. They're certainly more conservative than, you know, AIG. Um, but, you know, if they went, if they lost 15 or 20 percent, uh, that's less than probably the average American stock portfolio if they were just invested in something that tracks the Dow. Uh, but, uh, but still a lot, of, a lot of money to lose out of the public sector. And I guess everybody must be asking themselves similar questions now a year later. How much risk? Yes, you agree. Yes, I agree. <laughs> you have nothing to add. Uh, um, let's go to Rebecca in Manhattan. You're, you're on WNYC. Rebecca, hello.
1: Yeah, hi. Uh, my question is this. Unlike other uh, recipients of philanthropy, museums, especially those like the Metropolitan Museum, are huge treasure chests with dark warehouses full of tremendously valuable assets. So I'm wondering, do they leverage these assets, or why wouldn't they just sell them off? I can, I can comment on that. Uh, um, the question is for you. Well, uh, they can't actually leverage those assets, and I think that's actually appropriate. Uh, there's a rule in place uh, with all museums that you cannot take a loan out based on the paintings in your portfolio. Um, you can't sell it for operating expenses. That's in order to protect uh, art in the public trust and to keep it from being used as just another financial instrument.
0: Rebecca, thank you. But we have seen places like Brandeis University, and you've written about this, which recently sold off a good chunk of its art collection simply to stay afloat.
1: Well, this is another form of the crisis. Uh, You know, the Metropolitan Opera, because it's not a museum and it doesn't fall under the museum rules, uh, was able to take a loan out on their Marc Chagall tapestries. Um, That's not something you can do when you're a museum. But... You know, people are going to try to squeeze the money out anywhere they can. Why can't you
0: take an equity loan on the value of your rare objects if you can take an, an equity loan on the value of your house, for example?
1: I think there needs to be a separation between the art that's uh, in a permanent collection and, uh, and the way things are funded. Um, these things shouldn't be leveraged.
0: Paul in Manhattan here on WNYC. Hello.
1: I had a general question about the shift
0: from the more conservative investment practices of the institutions to the more risky, about whether or not there was a subtle or direct influence by the donors who would give money to these institutions that required or expected the institutions to invest a certain amount of that money in more risky uh, instruments, in the equity funds that may have been controlled by the donors or and so forth. Did the writer look into any of that?
1: I want to say I don't – from what I've seen, I don't think it's that kind of case where, where wealthy donors just wanted the money invested in their own hedge fund. I think that the people who manage this money, uh, for example, at the Metropolitan, are probably the best minds on Wall Street, and they uh, had only good intentions uh, in taking on this riskier strategy. Uh, This riskier strategy is kind of gospel now in the way you invest uh, your endowment, and I think it hasn't been until we had the downturn that anyone questioned it. Thank you. Paul, do you think that the
0: extravagant types of exhibits that were going on pre-boom and one could talk about the Brooklyn Museum, one could talk about the Matt Take Your Pick were related to the fact that organizations felt pressure to bring in audiences less interested in traditional art and is that at all at all related to this conversations uh, conversation because we certainly have seen uh, you know exhibits at least sort of leading high publicity exhibits um crafted that may not have been in the past for the sake of audience development
1: well I will say that high profile exhibits can make up the money that you spend on them through ticket sales so I'm not going to say they just spent it you know, um, without thinking about that um, I do think that there's now a pullback and I think it's a good thing for arts organization the Metropolitan Museum is now going to focus more on its permanent collection which is, which is extraordinary in mounting shows uh, that's a good thing I think there is too much high-profile kind of museum as sideshow or circus that um, is not healthy, I think, to the art inside those institutions.
0: There was a recent piece in The Times about how more museums are turning to sponsors to not just help fund but at times actually curate their exhibits. Are we going to see more of these? Why are you rolling your Uh, eyes? uh,
1: You know, we probably will Uh, once things start to recover. I, I hope that's not the the solution we arrive at, um, I think that's really dangerous when you start having corporate sponsors in there with the curators deciding what's going to go on the walls. So what happens? And and well, to get back to the
0: to the exhibits for a minute, I mean, you know, this is a this is an ongoing discussion back to when the um, the ancient Egypt exhibit came to the Met and it was right, oh right. this is sensationalist, <laughs> this isn't art. You know, mm-hmm. it seems to me that that's. An argument that's been retired—that um, there's plenty of room for those kinds of things—and if, if it helps develop audiences for the permanent collection, then it's pretty much a good thing. Is there any controversy left there? It all, all the problems started with Thomas Hoving, in right. my opinion, the, but, who's the one who brought in that right. that particular exhibit.
1: Yeah. And how far does that go back in now? The, 1980 yeah, or something? In the 70s. 70s. There, um, there. Uh, I think. Um, you know high profile shows do have a place i think we've arrived at that conclusion you know that's fine uh but i you know i i question when shows become kind of trophy shows uh there to to um you know polish the luster of a director let's say um that's dangerous i think and i think when they also diminish their uh educational mission to the uh to the public in order to just show let's say um, harley davidson motorcycles
0: so last question what you call the yale model of major nonprofits investing for growth was considered the gold standard mm. is the yale model now discredited and a nickname for bad investments okay. or are the arts organizations of america still
1: figuring it out well i think still figuring it out uh, I'm not an economist, so I don't want to just you know, talk about the Yale model and say I know, you know this is the, not the right model. Uh, I do know that there are some uh, researchers who believe it, it's not quite as good as we thought it was because the illiquid assets go down precisely when the rest of the market goes down. It goes down even more than the rest of the market. You can't even pull that cash out, and it's precisely when – and if you're an arts organization, you need that money.
0: I'll throw in one more. Since you're an arts critic, uh-huh. aesthetically – are we seeing any kind of art in the post-crash era that we can identify as, you know, recession art?
1: <laughs> uh, it's a great question. I'm looking around for it.
0: Post-housing boom <laughs> art, you know, anything? Because this was supposed to be, we still don't know if it's going to be, this was supposed to be not just a cyclical downturn, but this was supposed to be the end of 50
1: years of how we look at society and, and, and our personal wealth. I mean, I have, you know, I'm rooting for my certain camps. Uh, you know, I'd love to see a return to uh, New York-style abstraction. But I don't know if the recession is going to bring that about or not.
0: All right. James Spanaro, his article in City Journal is called The Culture Crash. Thank you very much. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. We'll talk about those smaller arts institutions next. Thanks for listening to WNYC On Demand. Please check out our other programs at WNYC.org or on iTunes. This free service is made possible by our listeners. Become a member of WNYC today.